Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on our world. Lord, have mercy on our country. Lord, have mercy on us. And Lord, have mercy on me. It's the one requirement for entrance into the kingdom of God that we know we need mercy and we fling ourselves at the mercy of God. It's this that draws a watching world to Jesus, the mercy of God. May we be a merciful people. Heavenly Father, what a moment. Thank you for the gift of music. Thank you for the gift of song. Thank you for the lyrics, for the minor key that pierces our heart. Make us aware that we need you in whatever season of life we may be in, on the mountain or the valley, in the land flowing with milk and honey or in the wilderness. You're no less God, and our need isn't any less. Remind us of this. We ask for your sake and for your people's sake. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much. I don't know if I've earned it, but I like to take a little, liber- little liberty when I can. <clears throat> Good morning. My name is Chad Myers. I am our adult discipleship director, and it is a privilege to be here in this room this morning with you. Thank you again to Melody and her husband and the choir and the musicians. Can we say thank you again? Why we need why we need the arts and poetry and those gifts because they get to the emotive sides and it's something that a sermon even at its best just can't do. So, last week, Doctor Bill Bachnight, man, I think you left the service and said he was on fire, and he was. He kicked down the front door of our heart and gave us the spiritual business, did he not? Whew. My feet hurt all week. It was so good. And uh, I am humbled and honored to continue on in this series, Wisdom in the Wilderness. When we were growing up, I had an older brother, younger brother. We grew up in West Texas, and we were outside a lot. And we had bikes and scooters and skateboards and all sorts of things. And one of the things that we liked to do as boys, we liked to build ramps. And we wanted to build ramps so that we could jump off the ramps, right? I see heads nodding. And so sometimes our ramps weren't very good. And, you know, they broke when you first got on them, but we learned. And uh, one time I remember we built a very good launch ramp. We went to the local lumber store, which at that time was called Builder Square. And we got the the plywood and we got the two by fours and we put our ramp together. And then after we had done all this work, we all stood back and kind of just looked at each other. And we looked at each other with the knowing question, like, well, who's going to test this thing? Who's the first one to take a launch off the three-foot-high launch ramp and, you know, maybe break an arm or show us what not to do? And uh, we tend to test things that we may not trust. We didn't trust it. We hadn't seen anybody do it. 
We tend to test things that we may not trust. I uh, was here for three weeks, uh, three weekends in a row. Tuesday, I flew back to Missouri where my family is, and I was getting on the, I was walking past security in the Columbia airport, and there was a sign before we get on the plane. It was a large sign, and it said, uh, do not be alarmed. Uh, emergency testing. When you tell somebody not to be alarmed, the first thing they do is, well, I'm nervous. The emergency testing. You may see ambulances, ambulances and fire trucks on the runway with their lights on. Okay, so it was this testing process that if anything had happened. But could you imagine getting on the plane and you didn't see that? Sitting on there ready to take off, you know, buckling in, a little bit of nerves. You look outside and here comes a fire truck and ambulances with their lights on. Help! This is testing. Because... They needed to know how they would respond in the moment. We test things that are new to us. We test things that we don't quite trust. We test out clothes when we try them on. We test out running shoes. Sometimes when we're dating, we test out relationships. (laughs) Is this going to work? But sometimes we test God. We test his character. And often when we're in our core relationships, that testing of the relationship actually deteriorates trust. You know, will you really be there for me if I choose this? Will you really stay committed to me if I become this type of person? Are you really there for me? Do you really love me? And when we start to test that in the relationship, some of you experience this, it deteriorates the trust. And when we talk about God, I want us to always think about in relational terms. Today, we're going to be talking about the temptation to test God. We're in our series, Wisdom in the Wilderness, and I think that we'll go through uh, a lot of different wildernesses in our lives. Wildernesses. Wilderness-I. Wilderni. Goose-geese. You figure it out and tell me which one it is. What is the plural of wilderness? Is. Wilderness is. <laughs> I think I said that. Wilderness I sounds more fun. Anyways, you're going to go through a lot of those things in your life. And when we're in the wilderness, our normal constructs and comforts are stripped from us. Some of you are fasting for Lent. So you may be fasting from food or caffeine. Uh, you may be fasting from chocolate. I never recommend that because I love chocolate. You may be fasting from Netflix or streaming or whatever it is. And as soon as you make the decision to go without, you feel it. You feel that, oh, I'm without. I have a lack. And when we're in the wilderness, we're without our normal constructs and comforts and rhythms. And so we feel vulnerable. We feel a bit exposed. I said this uh, in a service A few weeks ago, the wilderness is often the experience of the absence of God. It seems like God has taken his hand off of us. I say experience because it's not the reality. And yet all of our senses, maybe even our spirit is telling us, ah, God's abandoned you. He's not with you. That's not reality, but that's our experience. And we're in a wilderness. And when we feel vulnerable, we do not like feeling vulnerable as human beings. So we try to quickly cover up those places. We try to cope most often in unhelpful ways. And sometimes we're tempted to test God's character. Are you really good? You really gonna walk me through this? You really gonna be with me as I go through the valley of this shadow of death? Sometimes I'm not so sure. Hopefully today we stumble upon 
some wisdom in the wilderness. This is a picture of the wilderness in Israel. So, you know, often when preachers talk about wilderness, they talk about, you know, camping or going on a backpacking trip or something like that. And that's all fine. But this is more so what Jesus would have experienced. Very dry, beautiful, but very dry, very rocky, um, some deep ravines. uh, And so, you know, see a lot of rocks there. So Satan, you know, when he tempts him with his first temptation, you turn these stones into bread. There would have been a lot of stones there. Jesus was out in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights as a recapitulation of the people of God who tested God in the wilderness and failed. That's why they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And Jesus, the Israelites were called son of God, brought my son out of Egypt, and Jesus is the true son of God, and he is reliving the wilderness experience so that he could be confirmed as the son of God, as Messiah, so that he might faithfully lead his people in bringing universal blessing to the nations. That's why Jesus is in the wilderness. Our passage today is only three verses, but you know me. I can talk for quite a bit on three verses. So let's start, and uh, we'll see. We have communion, so that's a good thing. i got to get us to communion. Uh, Matthew 4, 5 through 7, it says this. It's the second temptation of Jesus. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. There's a lot of scriptural things going on here. Satan comes to Jesus, and then he quotes Psalm 91, which we'll talk about in just a moment, and then Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6. Now, if you think three verses might be a long sermon, the Israelites had a 30-chapter sermon when after they finished their wandering in the wilderness and it was time for the next generation to go into the promised land, Moses preached to them a sermon. It was a sermon of exhortation. When you're there, here's how it's going to be. It was also a sermon of warning. When you're there, be careful not to do that. That sermon is known as Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Jesus would have been familiar with that sermon. He says, do not test the Lord your God. So Moses is saying to the people of God, hey, when you get into the promised land, don't test him like you did in the wilderness. In the book of Numbers, it says that the people of God tested God 10 times. They didn't trust him. We don't think you're really with us. We got to go back to Egypt. At least we had our bellies full in Egypt and we had all that we could eat. And now you brought us out here and to die. We, got, we don't have any water. We got this um, frosted flake stuff. We're getting really sick of that. We had meat. Let's go backwards. And it's this unbelief. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, don't put the Lord your God to the test. But also in Deuteronomy 8, God says, but I led you through the wilderness so that I could test you and see what was inside your heart. So what I'd like to do today briefly is, is kind of weave these threads together. There's two types of testing in the wilderness. There's our temptation to test God, 
And then there's God's testing of us. You ever seen those Gogurts? Our kids love these little Gogurts. It's like frozen yogurt. Why did they name it Gogurt, though? That's like an unappetizing name. Anyways, so you get these things, this frozen yogurt, and you shove it in the freezer, and then you pull it out, and you cut off the top, and then you hold it, and you got to pull it up, you know, squeeze it up to eat. Well, it's great, except that it's frozen solid when it comes out of the freezer. And then my kids are always like, because I'm really hot-natured, they're like, hey, take it, Dad, and melt it down a little bit so we can get the stuff out of the gogurt. So I grab it in both hands, melt it down a little bit, and then they can squeeze the bottom, and it pushes up the gogurt so they can eat it. When we're in the wilderness, you're like, what does that have to do with this? Just <laughs> hold on. When we're in the wilderness, it squeezes on our hearts, and it brings to the surface whatever is going on inside of us. Not so God can be aware, but so that we can be aware and that we might take our next step spiritually or maybe that we can repent and confess. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's lust. And we didn't know it was there because we're so busy with our day and our life. And then we go to the wilderness and it starts to squeeze on us. We're like, oh, didn't know that was there. And then we know how to move forward. So unskillfully, I'm trying to be skillful, but unskillfully, I would like to talk about these two testings in the wilderness, our temptation to test and God's test of our trust. Satan comes to Jesus and he takes him to the temple. Now, this is strange because we don't know, it doesn't tell us, did he physically take him to the temple? It would be interesting if he is in the wilderness and he takes him physically to the temple and takes him to the highest point. It's more likely, though, that it's some type of vision, that he presents Jesus in a vision with him at the highest point of the temple. The pinnacle of the temple is what it says, and it likely would have been the edge of the temple uh, that's overlooked the Kidron Valley, and it would have been a large fall, and he tempts Jesus, you know, takes him to the temple and says, you can, you can jump off here. And God will catch you. God's promised to you that you're not going to get hurt and he's going to catch you. Look at Psalm 91. And what is going on? Notice that Satan doesn't use scripture until Jesus does. That's not in the first temptation. He just says, turn those stones into bread. And Jesus said, man, does that live on bread alone? Close to Deuteronomy. And then Satan says, aha, aha, I see you're very spiritual, sir. Well, let's go there then. Aha, I see you know scripture. Well, I know scripture too. I think it's very interesting that the devil takes Jesus to church to have a conversation about the Bible. So he takes Jesus and he says, go ahead and throw yourself down because, and then he quotes Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you. They'll lift up their hands and you will not strike your foot against a stone. He also would have known Malachi 3.1. says this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So in a sense, Satan is saying, you're the claimed Messiah. You're the son of God from the lineage of David. Why don't you just go ahead? Look, Malachi prophesies about it. God promises to you. Why don't you just go ahead and appear suddenly and get this Messiah thing over with? This is it right here. Start the kingdom. What is this temptation? Why is he using scripture? And why is it relevant for us today? One of Satan's great tactics is to erode our values. It's to erode our values. You often hear of the devil 
He knows all your weaknesses. You know, he knows all your weaknesses, and he's going to tempt you in your weaknesses, and he's going to lure you in your weaknesses, and that's where he's going to attack you. But I think Satan would love to keep us preoccupied with our minor small flaws. I think he would love to because guess what? Guess what we're not watching then? Our strength. And the reality is this, and you know it as soon as I say it. Our greatest strength is also our greatest weakness. Our greatest strength is also our greatest weakness. So I love the Bible. I read the Bible. I study the Bible. We've got to be careful that our greatest strength does not become our greatest weakness, that we do not misuse the Bible, right? I'm a prayer warrior. I pray all the time. I fast and I pray. We have to be careful that we are not filled with spiritual pride, thinking that prayer is a form of manipulation for God. We think that our marriage is very strong. We have a great marriage. We've never had any trouble. And we think, you know, we've gone for 15, 20 years and there's no problems at all and nothing can ever break that marriage. Be careful. Our greatest strength is often our greatest weakness. We're very passionate. We're so passionate about our causes and passionate about what we believe in. Be careful. Our greatest strength can be our greatest weakness. You look like a congregation who could use a Star Wars reference. Yeah. At least I got a yes. Come on. Nine o'clock was kind of like, what? <laughs> in, in the third movie, not four, five, six, as we all watched it, right? You know four, five, six, and then one, two, three. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, if you don't, I'll, I'll still get something for you. The, the way that Anakin Skywalker becomes Darth Vader, he's one of the most gifted Jedi most powerful Jedi ever to be recognized, and he is supposed to bring balance to the force and all these things, but he falls in love, something that, according to the Jedi Council, he was not supposed to do. He falls in love, and then he gets married secretly, and he gets married secretly to Padme, and he loves her passion. No one questions that. He loves her fiercely. His love is genuine. He loves her very, very much, but he has a prophetic vision that Padme is going to die in childbearing. And in order to try to save Padme from death, he realizes, because he loves her so much, that the Jedi cannot help him in saving her from this tragedy of death. So he turns to the dark side, because that allurement of power to prevent any pain from happening was seductive to him. Our greatest strength the devil can twist it and it can become our greatest weakness. So, as 1 Corinthians tells us, when you think you are standing firm, watch out that you do not fall. He took Jesus to church and he talked about the Bible. And sometimes we are tempted because the Bible is a powerful thing. And there's a lot of temptation today to grab onto the Bible because it's powerful and to use it against people that we oppose, right? We can use it to manipulate or we can use it to maim. The liberal, the progressive might use it to manipulate. The progressive might say something like, well, see, look at this Old Testament. You got something in here that says you can't eat shrimp. Like, what is that about? Everybody knows that shrimp is good. Shrimp tastes good. We like shrimp. The progressive says, oh, look at this. We got this one verse. This, and, and it also says you can't shave your sideburns. So they take this passage and they say, well, look, the whole thing. How can you even trust the whole thing? And it's, it's a mockery. But the conservative is tempted to maim. We have this high value on scripture and we believe this orthodox. And uh, you know what? I'm going to take this and I'm going to use it to judge you, feel superior to you, 
feel better than you. I'm going to use this to say I get to decide who's in and who's out. And last time I checked, none of us get to decide who's in and who's out. That's a creator thing, not a creature thing. In fact, all that we get, are we preaching or what? Come on, come on. I thought we was. I just needed to make sure. All that we get is people's profession of faith and their baptism. And if they profess to be a Christian and they have the sacrament of baptism, we, that's all we get. These external things, then we treat them as a believer. That's it. But if someone professes not to be a Christian and in their own sense they proclaim to be out, then the Bible then instructs us to love them so well that they just might want to be in. Can I get an amen? We have to be careful because the Bible's so powerful not to use and abuse its power, not to be tempted in that sense. We are tempted to test God by presuming upon his providence. How's that for alliteration? A couple T's, a couple P's, pass the test. We're tempted to test God by presuming upon his providence. Psalm 91, Satan quotes to Jesus It is a psalm of protection. God will protect you from the fowler's snare. God will protect you from the pestilence. God will protect you from the plague. God won't let your foot strike a stone. And these things are not not true. So what do we do with them? Jesus says, hold on, don't test God. So it's not that Satan is taking this verse out of context, as we often hear. It's not that Satan is twisting this verse, as we often hear Satan doing. What is he doing? Jesus says, don't test the Lord your God. In a sense, he's tempting him to presume upon God's providence. We can presume upon his providence by misapplying scripture to our current situation. We say, oh, these promises were for Abraham. You know, go leave your land, go to the promised land, I'll show you. And we can take that and somehow we can apply those to our own individual life. Oh, look at these promises to David. He's going to fight Goliath and kill the giant. Here's the problem with that. We're the people of God. My name's not David. My name's not Moses. My name's not Abraham. We're the one on the sideline cheering the David, King Jesus, on. So we don't necessarily get to take those things and say, oh, this applies to me. But we also test God's providence by cutting against the grain of the world he created. Sometimes I get this notion from people, especially Christian parents. It's this notion that, you know what, it doesn't necessarily matter how you parent. What matters is if you pray for your kids and then you get them involved in church. The only challenge with that is this, is that it cuts against the wisdom of God's world. And we may pray and we may get them in church, but if we're not present parents, we reap what we sow. We reap what we sow no matter how much we pray because God created a world of consequences and we have to respect the grain of the world and work with it and not 
against it. So we presume upon his providence by thinking somehow, well, that, I don't know if that really applies to me. Or if we don't have integrity in our business practices, but we're a believer, and we think, well, maybe oh, God will wink at this and he'll let me off the hook because that's spiritual entitlement, friends. I'm going to say a statement, and then I'm going to have to unpack it. Faith does not protect us from danger, but faith preserves us in danger. Faith does not protect us from danger, but faith preserves us in danger. You see, the promises of God are not not true. Psalm 91 is true. But yet the temptation that Satan presents to Jesus is to mistime it. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus died. God did not protect his foot from striking a stone. He was hung on a tree and bled and died as a mockery and a blasphemer. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. So what do we do with that when it comes to reconciling the promises of God? Let me try to illustrate. I have a friend. His name is uh, Jeremy Casper. He lives in Missouri now, but he's worked in L.A. for a long time, and he is a director and cinematographer, and he wrote a book, um, and me and him both help out with this certain nonprofit, and he was just teaching a class in L.A., a nine-week class about storytelling and film, and he was teaching us about character development. And he said one of the great things about character development in film is he said you'll see this character with a need, an internal need, and based on that internal need, they'll have an external pursuit of fulfilling that need. And he says, so let's say your, your character, let's say, uh, has the internal need of security and comfort and safety. That's something that we all have. And so we need security and comfort and safety. So maybe we move to a safe neighborhood or maybe we get a security system uh, or whatever it may be to provide that. But the story actually gets good be- when the character realizes that there are deeper things that the character has to learn. And this is why we get involved in the wilderness because there are deeper things we have to learn. And the deeper truth that the character has to learn is this, danger and death are a part of everyday life. And we teach kids, God protects you, God loves you, he'll protect you, and that's true. But when we grow up, we have to learn the deeper truth, that faith does not protect us from danger. There are many faith-filled people who die from cancer. There are many faith-filled people who died from COVID. And die faith-filled, by all means, I agree with that. I see, I see T-shirts. I don't see any T-shirts here. T-shirts like faith over fear and sweatshirts, faith over fear. And I see things in yards as faith over fear. And I agree with that. It should be faith over fear as long as we're saying this, that faith does not protect me from danger, but it preserves me in danger. The only appropriate time to apply Psalm 91 to Jesus's life would have been in his resurrection. Now God has preserved me from the fowler's snare. I passed through death and I raised unto life. And that's our future if we're committed to Jesus. That's what faith does. I'm passionate about this because so often we get bumper sticker Christianity, right? Bumper sticker, bumper sticker Christianity turns everybody off, even Christians, right? And I want us to be encouraged to have a deeper faith. Like what does the promises of God really mean for suffering and death and absurdity that we all see around us? I have a dog. How's that for a segue? (laughs) I didn't take preaching in seminary. I think sometimes it shows, like it shows. We have a dog and she's not a Christian yet. Her name's Chewbacca. She's a great Dane. 
We pray for her and we preach the good news to her every day. She's just not there. We went and had dinner with Brett Finstermaker. He's the, uh, one of the worship leaders over in our other uh, room and him and his wife, Michaela, invite us over. And, we, and they have a dog named Odie and their dog is a Christian. You say, well, how do you know? Because their dog prays before meals. Crosses its paws and they pray and the dog does not eat until the prayer is done. Our dog interrupts prayer time at meals. Comes over and like nudges you really hard with her nose and then she grumbles at you. Like during the prayer, right? Well, this week we also found out some worse news. There were some baby rabbits that had been in our backyard and we didn't know this and our dog Chewbacca killed one of the baby rabbits. And my wife sent me a photo of that. Thank you very much. I can't erase that memory. I know, right? Not only is she not a Christian, but a murderer to boot. Pray for Chewbacca. Come on. That's a, that's a good bumper sticker. I, I said to Brett, Brett, we need to get Odie and Chewbacca together. Like Odie needs to rub off on our dog. Our dog is not repented yet. You say, where are you going with that? I got that picture, and I had, I had pet rabbits growing up, and something about it just crushed me, and it caught me off guard. I wasn't ready for it, and I looked at that, and I thought, yeah, I guess that's about right. Death is everywhere. We just forget. Death is everywhere. It's in the killing of a baby rabbit. War. Death and danger is everywhere. Disease, death and danger is everywhere. God is saying, do you have a deep enough trust, a deep enough trust to walk with me through the fire, through the flood? I will be with you, but maybe not like that. We're tempted to test God by presuming upon his providence. And lastly, we're tempted to test God by passing over the process. We would love to pass over the process. This is the great temptation in the wilderness. Ouch, this hurts. I don't like pain. Get me out of here. Right? This is confusing. This is depressing. I'm on the verge of despair. I think, no thanks, let's skip to the good part. It's like watching a movie that you've already seen and they got this big, long, you know, painful character development. You're like, can we just skip to the good part? This is the temptation put to Jesus. Why don't you just skip the cross? You show up in the temple, you jump off, God saves you, you can skip the whole process, Jesus. And Jesus says, actually, I can't. And you can't either if you want to grow into spiritual maturity. Skipping the process keeps you a spiritual child. Embracing the process helps you grow into a spiritual adult. Jesus says, don't skip the process. You know what's funny? Do I have time for this? Jesus actually gets all three things that the devil tempts him with. He actually gets all three things. Uh, turn the stones into bread, jump down, and God will save you, and then worship me, and you'll get all the kingdoms of the world. So Jesus, in his resurrection, uh, he becomes living bread. He becomes the bread of life. He actually goes through the cross, and then God resurrects him, so he is actually preserved from th that death. And then... As the risen Savior and Lord, he is installed as the Davidic king and inherits all the kingdoms of the world. So he gets all of them. He just has to submit to the process of confirming that he is the Messiah and the Son of God. 
Jenny Simmons in her book, The Road to Becoming, says it like this, sprinting to the finish line only shortchanges dreams that need divine time to come to life. It only shortchanges dreams that need divine time to come to life. James, half-brother of Jesus, he puts it like this, James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing, uh uh-oh, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let, and surrender, and yield, and allow, and don't resist perseverance. Let it finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. Not perfect, but mature. Not lacking anything. Allow perseverance to have its work. Let perseverance to run its course. When you're in the wilderness, stay in the wilderness until God leads you out. His timing is perfect. I'm preaching to myself. Edwin Freeman He was uh, ordained rabbi, also served in Washington for many years, and a family therapist. He has a book called Friedman's Fables, and in that book, he writes a story, and I will paraphrase it for you. There was a man who had a certain holly tree, and he loved this holly tree, and he wanted it to bloom and to grow. And so ever since it was young, he planted it close to the foundation of its house to try to shelter it from the winter winds. That was right, but after it had grown a little bit, he had carefully replanted it into the large portion of his yard so it could spread out its roots and get healthy. After time went by, however, the holly grew and soon found itself struggling. He, he did everything that he could in his tender care. He made sure that it got the proper amount of nutrients and the proper thick bed of mulch and only the finest fertilizer for this holly. And he watched over it with all care that he had. And yet he noticed that as some of the years went by, the leaves began to fall, but they weren't replaced. It wasn't bringing new growth. He was perplexed. So in an unexpected turn of events, he goes to the library and he borrows books. He writes experts in newspapers and magazines. Perhaps something is wrong. There's a disease or a noxious blight that has invaded this area. Each morning he awakes to find that every care that he provided still doesn't actually help the tree. And when fall came, the holly was a sorry sight. Few leaves were left, most of them turning brown. He obsessed about it over the winter. Maybe in the spring he would see a few buds of life. He thought about it every day, went to work. He thought about it in the middle of the night when he woke up. Maybe this spring it would finally start to grow, but his hopes failed. Still even trying more fertilizer, newer, softer blanket of mulch, further pruning. It didn't work. Finally, one day in early summer, before he was about to leave for a long vacation, he was preparing the plants, and he went out and took a pair of shears, and he began to gingerly prune each little limb that had died. He peeled it back to see if there was any growth, and if there wasn't and it was dead, he would clip it. But as he began to clip more and more and more, his care turned to frustration. He began to, rather than pity, feel anger. So he clipped away. And he clipped away without checking, and he clipped away carelessly. Faster he began to clip, and faster and with gusto, indiscriminately, this way and that, he began to clip. And then finally he realized he had clipped every single branch and every single limb off, and nothing stood on it but a trunk at face high. Heartbroken, he left for vacation and said to his wife, I'll dig it up when we return. But after a while, when they returned, something had changed. 
as they drove up at first from a distance and then with a closer view, they could see the holly now bristling with small portions of green from every cut and every wound and every point from which a parted limb had gone, a hundred prickly green tongues. The process is painful. And God prunes us in the process. But we need it. Without the process, we grow comfortable and spiritually lazy. And we grow soft and dead. We need the wilderness in our life. And we need to allow it to run its course so that we may be full and complete, not lacking anything. Jesus said this in Matthew 26. In just a moment, we're going to share in communion. He said this in Matthew 26. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He's in another wilderness. He's in another wilderness. But he had already had the momentum of the first trust. It says, going a little far, farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Do you see? Trust has a wrestling match. There has to be a wrestling match with our trust. It has to be tempered in the wilderness and in the wilderness of the garden where we say, you know what? I do not like feeling exposed or humiliated or vulnerable. I want nothing to do with this. I am going to close my heart and I'm going to get out of the wilderness. And we may say that. But ruthless trust says, and yet, not my will, not my will, but thy will be done. That's what I would want. And I got to say that to you, God. And yet, not my will. This is why I'm a Christian. One of the main reasons I'm a Christian is because I think it says the most satisfactory answer to suffering, pain, and absurdity. Not perfectly satisfying, but very satisfying. It looks at pain and suffering and absurdity and death, and it looks it head on in the face and says, yeah, that stuff's real. But it's not a waste. God's going to take suffering, death, pain, and absurdity, and he's going to use the darkest things in our life and in our world, and he is going to bring new life from it. He's going to grow life from it. Easter Sunday is coming, but Good Friday comes first. And as we hold on to his hand and trust him, he will bring new life from our deepest sorrows and deepest pains. That's what it means when we share in communion, that he was betrayed, that he experienced the forsakenness of the Father and the weight of the sin on his, of the world on his shoulders. And in our wilderness, we enter in to the wilderness of the cross so that we can trust that he'll raise us back from the grave. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these tough truths, for these truths that sustain us, that sustain us when we feel lost and confused and overwhelmed by grief, that sustain us when we cannot see or feel you or experience you, 
that sustain us when we've lost our way. You're a God who is faithful. You're a God who is with us. You know what it's like. And so we trust you. Help us trust you. For many of us, our prayer may be, we believe, help our unbelief. You're a good God, and you know, you've always known exactly what you're doing. Thank you for this sacrament that we get to partake in. Remind us of the love that was shed for us. In Christ's name, amen.